Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we're just going to dive into our text, which is in 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, as always, for the blessings that we have here in America. I thank you for the blessings we have in Florida and for the blessings we have even in our local counties and cities. Lord, we're able to gather together and worship you. Our church is able to host many gatherings on Sunday and during the week, and our school is able to reach the community. Lord, I just thank you for the freedoms you've given us to live out our faith. And Lord, as we step into a new text of Scripture this morning, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would help me be accurate. I pray, Lord, that you would keep me from running far afield of where I need to go. I pray that you would help me to be focused on what you are focused on. And I pray for each one of us to have ears to hear. Lord, the text this morning, as with all of Scripture can impact us, it should convict us, it should teach us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us set aside anything that would hinder our reception of your word this morning and enable us to hear and apply it to our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have been excited about the book of 1 Peter for a lot of things. I mentioned before, one of the reasons I originally was steering this way is because I spend a lot of time in First Peter when I'm doing counseling with people because there's so much practical truth that can enable us to think rightly about how we relate to one another. And one of the texts that we are coming to this morning is foundational and critical for us. We find ourselves this morning in First Peter chapter 2, and the section that we're going to begin is starts at verse 13. In fact, this little section goes from verses 13 to verse 17. And the last two weeks, in verses 11 and 12, we really were sort of at a bridge point in the book. There was a connection to all the theology that's already been taught, and then there was a looking forward to what's coming in the remainder of the book. Verses 11 and 12 read this way, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter was really telling us, number one, watch your heart. Those fleshly lusts are not external things. Those are the desires within you that you have to fight against. Perverted desires, things that might have been innocent. They're not innocent when they're fleshly, when they're from the flesh. But also, we're supposed to live a certain way. Such that our lives become evangelistic. Performing good deeds, of course, but our behavior is supposed to be excellent. And it's supposed to be something that is knowable even to the unbelievers around us. If we were to do those two things, we'd really have accomplished everything I think Peter ultimately wanted us to accomplish in writing this letter. But now, as we continue on in the book, I think what Peter is doing is he's showing us in various facets of life what excellent behavior looks like, what good deeds look like. He's told us, keep your behavior excellent, 
among the Gentiles. Now I think in various areas of our life, he's going to bit by bit show us what that entails. And the first area of life deals with what I would say is a dual reality based on our status as aliens and strangers. If you were here when I talked about those words, aliens and strangers is really just a reflection of the fact that while we're on the earth, we're temporary. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. We're not supposed to be completely a part of this world. We're aliens and strangers. We have a new citizenship when we come to faith in Christ. We have a new passport, as it were, labeling us as citizens of heaven. And so as a result, we're supposed to live differently than all the Gentiles, all the other people around us. And what's happening, I believe, in verses 13 to 17, is dealing with the reality that even though we're aliens and strangers theologically, guess what? We still live here. We're still here. We're not in heaven. As much, I think, as many of us would love for the Lord to return today... Think about all the hassles you wouldn't have if the Lord took His church out of here. Well, I would be rejoicing with you. But since the Lord hasn't come and taken His church, we're here. So even though our true citizenship is heaven, we temporarily reside on the earth. And I think Peter is showing us what we're supposed to do while we're here when it comes to our government. I truly believe God's timing on when we arrived at these verses, which we'll cover over the next couple of weeks, two, three weeks, I believe God's timing was perfect. Because we live right now in a divided and tumultuous time in America. Where every day we see that there's a conflict going on amongst the citizenry. People are taking sides. People are labeling themselves. And right now, there's a lot of hostility amongst citizens. Now, I'm going to read this section, verses 13 to 17, because it's all dealing with the same basic issue. But the reality is, Peter is giving instruction that is very timely for us. Very timely for us at any time. It's timely throughout history, but in America... It's good for us to be reminded of these things, particularly when there's so much vitriol and anger surrounding us. Follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 13 to 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The beginning of this is the word submit. Submission is on display here. And it's a particular type of submission that we need to grapple with. As the book continues, the word submit is going to come up over and over. There's going to be other relationships where Peter is showing us what submission looks like. But in this case, and beginning this morning as we cover this little section, 
we're going to see what submission to the human governing authorities over us looks like and what God expects of us. In fact, we're going to see how to do God's will in the area of submission to our government. Anytime I come across a verse that says, such is the will of God, my ears perk up. How many of you want to be outside the will of God? None of you. We all want to be inside the will of God. This is one of those times where there's a flashing neon sign saying, this is the will of God, do this. Now, my outline for the next several weeks is not great. For some reason, in the last couple of months, I've been really struggling to put together outlines, but those are just a tool. They're not the truth. So I came up with a four-part outline that's going to take us a few weeks to get through. But it's basically very simple. Four aspects of living in God's will. Four aspects of living in God's will. And today, we're really only going to get to the first point. So, four aspects of living in God's will. The first point is this, and it's longer than I normally do, but I think it's important. God's will is for His children to submit to every form of human government. God's will is for His children to submit to every form of human government. My time in dealing with this comes from verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read them again. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, there is a remarkable amount of truth in these couple of verses. We see not only a command to us that we will cover, we see a reason for the command. We actually even see two of the primary reasons for God to allow human government to exist. And we're going to get into all of those and we're going to cover it methodically. There's a lot here and I'm going to break it down like I normally do into its component parts then put it back together. Yet the overarching point is fairly straightforward and simple. There's a lot of ways to apply it to our lives. But I want us to see each of the component parts and then I'm going to try and help us apply it. The first words, and I read from the New American Standard. If you have different versions, I always, when I'm studying, I'm looking at the different versions and I see there's some different words, but the basic starting point is the same. Submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. This is a situation where Peter is not being restrained. He's giving a very forceful command. This is an imperative. This is something we're mandated to do. This isn't optional. This isn't a suggestion. One commentator I noticed said there's even a sense of urgency in the way this is phrased. But notice it's submit yourselves. What is starting out here is that we are supposed to take the steps to do this. This is a voluntary act on our part of placing ourselves under authority. If I could picture it a little different, this isn't a situation where they're saying, when somebody's trying to make you submit, go ahead and go along with it. No, this is saying, this is something you affirmatively are mandated to do regardless of anything else. 
It's a duty to submit simply because that is correct. That's the right thing to do. How do I know it's the right thing to do? Because Peter makes it clear, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Now, obviously, this is something that only comes from knowing Christ, of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But this isn't an abstract principle of good citizenship for Americans. No, this is a biblical duty because of our testimony and our submission to the Lord. It is because of Jesus Christ that we make ourselves submissive. We are a reflection of Jesus and He Himself modeled submission. And this is an aspect of us doing what He did. In John 6.38, Jesus, who was God, made an interesting statement about His life on earth as God the Son. He said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In other words, Jesus was submissive as God the Son to the will of God the Father. So when we say the word submit, it's not a dirty word because Jesus did that. God the Son made Himself submissive to God the Father's will. And I'll explain in just a moment, He did this in other areas as well. But what we see in verse 13 is a very specific form of submission. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. To every human institution. Now, human institution might not be so clear, but I believe in the context, what's being referenced here is civil governmental authority. This is any type of man-made system of government that is over us wherever we happen to be living at a time. There's a lot of commentary on this verse, a lot of discussions, but I think the best understanding is this word that's translated in my version as institution had roots in reference to when new cities or communities were founded and the government structures that built up over them. And Peter, I think, makes our lives difficult with the word every. Every. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's comprehensive. Every form of societal government in any circumstance, in any civilization in which a Christian finds themselves, they are to submit. Now, let me just tell you, stop thinking about the exceptions that you've already made up in your own mind. We'll get there. (laughs) Just stop. Let me keep teaching. Now, part of the reason why I'm so confident that Peter is referring to specifically governing institutions is how he describes human institution. In other words, he gives illustrations in the context of the society in which he himself lived and the recipients of the letter lived. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him. Now, I want to be clear. Peter is not here making a statement about the relative values of various forms of government. He's not in any way suggesting that a monarchy is a superior form of government to a republic like we have. He's not addressing those issues at all. What he's looking at is he lived in the year of the Roman government. 
the current governmental system at the time of the writing of this letter for both the writer and the recipients was that there was an emperor or king. Some translations translate that word king to emperor as a reflection of the reality that at that time the emperor was in Rome. That's who Peter is referring to. And then he's referring to governors or to governors and those really were just lower level government officials. In biblical terms, there were at least three governors referenced at different places in the New Testament. Pontius Pilate was a governor. Felix was a governor. Festus was a governor. Here's Peter's point. Again, is not dealing with just the specifics. He's just making it clear whether you're talking about the ultimate civil authority or some low-level government functionary, you submit to all of them, to every human institution. doesn't matter whether it's the top dog or just a low-level person, you submit. Every single government official of any level, of any rung of the governmental ladder, a Christian is to submit to them. Now, I want to be clear, and I'm going to come back to this, but just as an illustration, so we're thinking correctly, we are Americans living in our current governmental system. What are the various levels of government? This isn't a civics lesson, although I used to be a lawyer, but just think about it on a daily level. Certainly, in our system, we have, on a federal level, the United States, we have three co-equal branches of government. We have a president who has a tremendous amount of authority because of all the delegated powers that he has in our Constitution. We have a Congress, the House and Senate, a co-equal branch to make the laws. We have a judiciary of various levels of courts all the way up to the Supreme Court. If the President deals with things within his purview, we submit. If Congress passes laws within its purview, we submit. If the Supreme Court issues the rulings of the land, we submit. But beyond that, there are countless levels of government below that. The bureaucracy that seems to suffocate America, we're supposed to submit to. How many agencies? You can't even come up with them. Social Security Administration, Environmental Protection Agency, the Education Department, the Treasury Department, which includes the IRS, the FBI, on and on it goes. It doesn't matter the level... Peter's words are comprehensive enough to make it clear that we are to submit. Every human institution. Take it a step farther. That's just the federal level. We happen to live in Florida right now. We're in Pinellas County. Most of us live in Pinellas County. Maybe a few don't. But in our various cities within the county, I live in Safety Harbor, some live in Clearwater, some live in Dunedin, Largo, St. Pete, on and on it goes. We have various Governing authorities over us here. We have a governor of the state of Florida. We have a legislature in Florida. We have a court system in Florida. Locally, we have county councils and city councils and mayors and bureaucrats. We have school boards. We have a multitude of government agencies all around us. Let me be clear. Every human institution. Every. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every Now, I'm going to come back to that. But Peter does something helpful here. He gives us a reason for government to exist. He's pointing out a reality. He said, or to governors as sent by him. And he's saying, why does the emperor send governors? 
for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. God uses the government to punish evil. That's one of the reasons civil government exists. The words used make it clear that this is really a type of retribution. In other words, the government gets paybacks for people who violate the law. They make someone pay for what they did. The only vengeance authorized in our society is the government executing the criminal laws. It's interesting because as Christians, we're never allowed to take our own vengeance. We're never allowed to take revenge. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 19 says this, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. One of the ways that God repays is through the use of the civil government. Romans 13, 3 and 4. Romans 13 actually has a parallel passage that has a lot of the same application. But Romans 13, verses 3 and 4 says this. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So what Peter is doing and what Paul did is they're making clear that one of the functions of government, one of the reasons in a fallen world that God has placed governing authorities in position is to restrain evil and to punish evil. That's God's divinely ordained protection. If you as a believer have someone commit a criminal act against you or threaten you in a criminal way, your recourse is to call the police. Get them involved. I marvel at the number of news articles I read, and I can't read things without looking at them like a lawyer and thinking of liability. The number of churches that a crime occurs in the church and they try and keep it in-house well, we're just going to deal with it quietly. We're just going to keep it here. That's unbiblical. Now, the forgiveness amongst believers has to occur within the church, but if there's a crime, call the police. I've given that advice many times in counseling when people say, well, this has occurred to me, call 911. I'll call for you. The forgiveness between members, how believers respond to each other is an in-house issue. But when evil occurs, when criminal acts occur, God ordains the civil authorities to deal with it. Now, in addition to punishing evil, as both Peter and Paul make clear, there is an element where the government can recognize positive behavior. The praise of those who do right. Government awards or positive citations or recognition or someone getting a thank you or a public accolades. Those are all legitimate functions of a civil government. Those are all legitimate uses of the government as God has ordained the government. Now, let me sort of summarize where we are so far. Because we're sort of through the substance of those two verses in terms of the actual words. Peter has made it clear, as Christians, our duty before the Lord and because of the Lord, for the Lord's sake, is to make ourselves submissive to any and every level of government over us 
where we live. From the lowest levels of city bureaucracy, wherever you happen to live, to the highest levels of government authority in the United States, it is our individual duty to make ourselves submissive and to place ourselves under that authority. So, what I've said so far actually is not that controversial. I can back it up. I mean, I can show you from the verses. You can't really argue too much. You could, but you wouldn't get anywhere. And most people, if I took everything I said point by point, could look at it and go, okay. Probably based on everything so far, people wouldn't get too bent out of shape. At least not yet. But now, as much as I can, I want to put this together and challenge us where we live. A lot of the things that I may say now are based on the struggles of my own heart since I came to faith back in 1993. Some of them are based on what I see going on around us, but I pray that everything I say has a biblical root I don't want to just say those general terms and have you understand and agree with it. I want you to look in the mirror individually. As I've been looking in the mirror individually. And I want you to challenge your own heart and allow the Lord to show you whether these simple truths are a stumbling block for you. This is where I get into dangerous territory. This is where someone could get offended, but I pray you won't be, and I pray you understand my heart. These are real issues that I have fought with, that I continue to fight with, that I fought with this week. But we don't follow God's will by ignoring the reality of what goes on. So I'm going to be doing something that is challenging. I'm going to be pulling out specific examples from our lives... And they're not every example I could think of, but they're enough examples that I hope it will cause each one of us to start thinking, where am I? Am I doing this? Because this is not only about behavior, this is about heart attitude. That's always the key. So I want to force each one of us to think. I want us to think about our lives today as citizens of America, all the way down to the citizens of our most local governmental area. Again, this is representative. I get to think of the examples because I'm the teacher, so these are the ones I thought of. You may think of others, and if the Lord's convicting you in another area, don't fight that. Ask Him to help you. Just because I don't mention it doesn't mean it's not a legitimate area of conviction. I'm just going to go through some that I've thought of. And the first area that I want to address is something that is very significant and it's on a national level. Big picture. In its most simple sense, we're required to submit at the highest levels of our government to our president. Now, 
I'm going to be very clear. I cannot talk about this without mentioning politics, but I'm not taking a political side. I'm just addressing what I've seen since 1993 in the four different churches that believe the scriptures that I've been a part of. Three in California, one here, which is Lakeside. I'm not making statements about the relative merits of any political party. I'm just using generalities based on what I see and the majority of the people that have been around me, including at Lakeside, deal with. I think every time there is a Democrat in the White House, submission becomes a stumbling block for evangelicals. I know myself... As a young person who knew everything, I had that struggle in the Clinton years. I did not like Bill Clinton. I thought he was dangerous. I thought he was setting the country on a bad path. There were other reasons. Don't matter right now. I'm just one person out of hundreds of millions of American citizens. And I'll be up front. I wasn't a fan of the administration of Barack Obama. I wasn't. And in the four churches I've been members of all this time, those were generally consensus. That doesn't mean there weren't fans of individuals because we're not a completely homogenous group. We do have some differing views. But in general, that's been an issue. And to be honest, and I don't want to get off track and go down a whole other side road, but I have the exact same struggles with our current president. I really struggle when I look at the news and I see what's going on. Even though he's not affiliated now with the Democratic Party. Now, so what? Who cares? Well, here's the issue. Number one, I think some of you can already relate to what I'm saying. You remember what it was like during those times and you had those thoughts. Now, is Peter saying that we have to like a president and we have to like his policy? No, not at all. But I have been greatly concerned with my own heart and with the hearts of the believers around me over the years as I've seen the number of Christians that actively hate a particular president. Both in terms of how they phrase the policies, but also how they talk about the individual. It's very personal And it's very destructive. It's almost as though there are times when you listen to American evangelicals where they would be happy if the president went immediately to hell. That is not a good place to be. That's not a good attitude. In fact, that's a sinful heart attitude. Not only that, Christians having a bad habit of speaking bad about a president all the time, speaking bad about them as individuals, saying bad things about them, stirring dissension with everybody else they know because they're repeating what they just heard on the news about the president. I hear times Christians saying, well, it's not my president. I don't recognize their authority. They're ungodly. They're wicked. I heard those sentiments expressed in this church when it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to become the president. Well, she'll never be my president. Can I tell you the issue there is not Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Bill Clinton or any other president. The issue is your own heart and your rebellion against God. 
In fact, when you talk that way and when you act that way, when we do that, when I did that in the past, what it's showing to everyone is we're really in rebellion against God. Well, ho, 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 Joe, hold on. Now you're getting a little carried away. You're stepping off the tracks. No, I'm not. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's exactly what Peter just said. Keep reading. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. When we shake our fist at Washington and we shake our fist at the president, what we're saying is, God, you're not good enough for me. I'm not content with your sovereignty, Lord. You blew it. Can Christians exercise political rights? Of course we can. We're citizens. We're allowed to vote. But political consideration should never drive our lives. Our duty is to be submissive to every human institution, regardless of political party or affiliation. If we have a president we don't like, guess what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to submit. And again, it isn't just in action. Well, I didn't go out and violate the law. It's in our hearts. Well, hold on a second, Joe. Yeah, okay. Theoretically, that's okay. But what about a president who's just blatantly immoral? What about a president who's a crook, who's ungodly? What about a president who usurps the Constitution? What about a president who's stepping outside the bounds of what a president's allowed to do and expanding his authority and exercising lawlessness? What about those bad presidents? I'll tell you what we should do. We should submit. And I'm going to prove it a little bit with history. Now, I can't get into a full history lesson this morning. I know I do a poor job of making certain that I'm aware of the historical context of everything. I get lazy. I love history. I've probably read a lot more history than some people. But even I get lazy and don't do my homework all the times. But I think this is one of those areas where Christians have a deficient knowledge of biblical area history and it impacts them negatively when it comes to what do I do when I don't like the president in America? What about when a president has affairs? What about when a president violates the law? What about when a president does all these immoral things? I don't have to submit then, do I, Joe? I'm going to tell you a little story. Now, I'm going to be up front that part of what I say, I'll try not to be graphic, is very disturbing. But it's true. This is reality. I'm going to tell you who was the emperor at the time of the writing of this book. A man whose name you probably know. It was a Roman emperor by the name of Nero. A lot of you have heard of Nero. But I went back in preparation and decided just to refresh myself and I went to a secular book there's a book about a variety of Caesars written by a man whose name I can't pronounce but it was obviously someone who had access to the royal records of Rome and it's a secular history written centuries ago thousands of years ago and it has a lot of details about each emperor 
both from the time of their birth and their ancestors all the way through their rule. And from that book, I'm going to share a few things about Nero. And I think this is going to address the issue that might come up in your mind, but what about when the president's evil? Surely I don't have to submit then. Nero came to power at a very young age, late teens. At that time, the Roman society had various orders of government. They had a senate. And Nero ascended to power. Now, what I'm going to share isn't necessarily chronological. I could go back and I could show you the chapters and redo it. But just in general, I'm going to share a few things about his life. On a personal level, he was not monogamous. Nero was married multiple times. He had multiple wives at different times. He was divorced and remarried over and over. It didn't matter. You're the emperor. Guess what? You can do what you want. Some of those marriages came about because he went and stole other people's wives because he's the emperor. Hey, I like your wife. I'm going to take her now. In fact, there were times where he killed the man. Lest we get too carried away, one of our heroes, David, did something similar. But unlike David, Nero had no redemptive aspect of his heart. He just did it. Marriage, though, for Nero was little more than a diversion. There are stories written. He frequented prostitutes all the time. In fact, he turned married women into prostitutes for his own pleasure. He had ultimate authority, and so on official business, he would arrange it, and they would have prostitutes stationed all along the route so that he could satisfy his sexual whims. He was a wicked man morally in that regard. Beyond the fact that he visited prostitutes repeatedly, beyond the fact that he was married multiple times to different women, beyond the fact that he stole multiple women as wives from other people, he randomly raped women just because he could. He often raped and killed. He was a vile, vile man when it came to his relations with women. But... I think it's particularly relevant when we at times think, well, we live in a different society. Nobody's ever seen this kind of evil. He also was a pedophile. He slept with boys all the time. Not only that, he actually married at least one young boy that he attempted some type of sex change way back then with some type of castration. And he took a young boy, probably a teenager, as a wife. Married publicly. We think gay marriage is something that nobody's ever seen. Not only that, he had countless men that he would sleep with. Add to this, not only was he sexually immoral, in office he was a vile thief. He had petty things where he would go out at night and steal just because he could. Again, he had unlimited power. But he would steal with the authority of the government. He was a master at bribery. He got his way by making sure everybody had money in their pockets. Guess what? Politics hasn't changed. 
But he ran out of money because he would do that. So how do you get more money when you're the king? You steal somebody else's. So if, for example, someone had a big estate and they had a lot of money, if they died and they didn't have an heir, guess who got it? Nero. So a lot of people died. And a lot of people committed suicide because they didn't have a choice. And he stole repeatedly and then he would spend the money and he would run out and he would steal some more. He circumvented the normal rule of law. He disregarded the legal system that he was a part of. There were things set up as checks and balances. He bulldozed them. If people publicly questioned or challenged him, they didn't get a nasty tweet. They died. Unceremoniously. Beyond that, he was a mass murderer. Just because. It was an account of some superstitious thing where some kind of astronomical event was occurring and some fortune teller told him something so he murdered a bunch of people just to be safe. Now, let me also be clear, none of this was done in the dark. People knew it. The other government leaders knew it. That's why a lot of them died. The people in society knew it. It's not as though Nero did all this behind closed doors and it only came to light after he was dead. He did this stuff publicly. Now, I don't really fear being contradicted with what I'm about to say. I can't absolutely prove it empirically, but I think I'm safe to say. You can take the five most immoral, worst presidents that we have. Take their worst character flaws. You add them all together and they don't equal a Nero. It turns your stomach to read what he did. And the account I gave wasn't even as graphic as some of the others. So what, Joe? Peter commanded Christians to submit to Nero. Peter unequivocally commanded Christians to submit to Nero. Not to rebel, not to march on Rome, not to engage in lawlessness to bring down the government. He told them to submit. I got to tell you, that is hard for me to get my hands around. It's true, though. That's it. But taking it from the abstract to the practical. And I thought later I could develop this even more. But Pontius Pilate was not a good man. That's another history lesson you could do. He was a wicked man. And yet Jesus submitted to Pontius Pilate. Wait a second. What are you talking about? He was falsely accused. He was falsely arrested. And yet you don't see Jesus burning down anything. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. He didn't. It's interesting. There's a dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. It's in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Pay very careful attention to these words. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. 
For this reason, he who delivered me to you has greater sin. Recognize this. Jesus acknowledged you have authority over me. I certainly couldn't have done what Jesus done. Absolutely, the 10,000 angels would have strung him up. I would have fought. Lightning bolts, whatever it took. How dare you? But Jesus, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, submitted. Even to the point where the unjust governor subjected him to torture and death. And what was Jesus' model for us? He submitted. Jesus knew that Pilate, for all his wickedness, and he was a wicked man, was the God-ordained authority at that time in that society. So what am I saying? This is just a chance to look at your heart. And this is an illustration of a bigger issue that we have going on. No matter how you feel about a particular president or a particular political party, about the policies or the objectives of a particular circumstance, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. We're not supposed to be beaten into it. The elders aren't supposed to arm wrestle you to get you to submit. It's supposed to be a circumstance where even if our particular president absolutely flies against everything you want in our country, you submit. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 contains truths that I have repeatedly ignored to my own detriment. Every time I'm frustrated by what's going on in Washington, and that includes now. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. I am guilty. I don't pray enough. Our president now frustrates me. I get aggravated. I don't pray. That's to my shame. I need to pray. But the last part is critical. Because I think in this day and age, we live in such a loud culture that absolutely convinces us that we're supposed to be always in a state of agitation and aggravation Here's what ultimately we should be praying for. 1 Timothy 2, verse 2 at the end, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's it. We just want to be left alone. Now, should we be a testimony? Of course. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. But it's not supposed to be because we are loud and noisy enough to get on the evening news. Or that we've created enough of a petition to really stir the pot and make everybody angry. No, we're just supposed to be living quiet and tranquil lives with dignity. Now, am I saying that we have to approve of people? Of course not. And be very clear, we never have to sin. If anybody at any level of government commands us to sin, then our duty is to disobey and take the punishment. But let me encourage you. 
I'm 50 years old. I'm not that old. 50 years old, though. Got a little bit of experience. I used to be a lawyer. So I paid attention to the law, and I lived in the most liberal state in America, California. And I can't recall a time where the government required me to violate God's law, ever. Is that time coming? I think so. In which case, we just take our punishment and we say, no, we must obey God rather than men. But far too often, Christians draw the line in the wrong place. Even in the wicked Roman Empire that was vile, that had filthy men like Nero, Christians could normally submit. And they could obey the government and God. I've got to tell you, it even includes how we talk about the authorities. Titus 3, 1 and 2 says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, verse 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. I am incredibly convicted that most of my adult life I've approached this wrong. Even when I know things, what I find myself doing is running my mouth and maligning and rebelling in my heart. We can't be that way. If we do everything right, the world will hate us. But I think in this area, unfortunately, we've given the world a bad testimony by our behavior. Christians are viewed as malcontents and rebels. You could almost picture the pitchforks and torches as we march on Washington to burn down the filth and drain the swamp. Which is far removed from a quiet and tranquil life with dignity maligning no one. So, that's just a representative example. The same thing, of course, occurs with Congress who everybody hates. At least some people like the president. Nobody likes Congress, but guess what our duty is? It's to submit. When they pass laws, even if we don't like them, if we think they're bad policy, if we think they're bad for the future of our country, our duty is to submit. Again, if they pass a law that requires us to sin, so be it. But if you think that law is passed, come talk to me. It may happen, but I don't know of it yet. What about the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court, depending on who you talk to, has usurped the Constitution. They've not interpreted the Constitution. Guess what our duty is? To submit. Again, we don't have to sin. But the fact remains, they are the legitimate human institution over one aspect of our government. Let me get a little closer to home and I'm just going to hit a few final things as we wind up. And some of these are personal projects, but it's just places for you to look. Let me come down off of the volatile ground of politics. Let's just settle down a little bit. 
Pray in your heart that you can forgive me for what I've already said. And let's just look at daily life. Most of us came here in a vehicle. On the side of the road, they have funny little signs with numbers on them. They have them all over the place. They have them on Sunset Point Road. They have them on 19. If you go over to Tampa on 275, you go south on 75, I-4 across the state. And it says on those things, speed limit. I used to drive very fast all the time. I had a very fast car. And then it occurred to me, is that the law or is it not? I'm going to tell you, if you habitually speed and you know you're speeding, you're in rebellion against God. And I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. But what happens, and I have been guilty of it in the past, and the Lord convicts different ones of us at different times, and we all have our blind spots, but let me tell you, that's part of human authority. You may not agree with it. If you remember back when the speed limit was 55, if you drove across country, which I did several times, that would kill you. (laughs) Except that God says do it. Local building codes and constructions. You know, a lot of things require permits. And I've over the years heard a lot of Christians say, if you do it this way, you don't let the government know what you're doing and then you can get away without doing the permit. That's not submission. That's just creative dishonesty. That's creatively circumventing the legitimate human institution that's over you. I'm not talking about ignorance of something. I'm talking about you know that the government wants you to do this, but that would cost $200 if you just cut this corner. You can save yourself money. That's not okay. Certainly a red flag is taxes. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Over the years, I've seen so many Christians that would be happy that Certain taxes were withheld, but if on a particular project I get paid in cash, this is great, I save some money. No. You rebel against God. There are many, many other areas. Here's all I'm trying to do. As your pastor and as your friend, trying to get you to look in the mirror of your heart And see where you are in terms of your obedience to the Lord in this area. Because let me be clear. If you don't submit to the local government, to the county government, to the state government, to the federal government. If you don't submit just not only in your actions but in your heart. You're rebelling against God. You're outside of God's will. We cannot be rebels without dishonoring our Savior. And as we'll see in coming weeks, without hurting our testimony. Because the world around you, the Gentiles with whom you live, are watching. If you're married to an unbeliever, they're watching. 
If your kids aren't saved, they're watching. If your friends and family are around, they're watching. Your co-workers with whom you discuss things around the water cooler, they're watching. Submit to every form of human government by your actions and by your hearts. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this is an area where I know I have stumbled and failed so many times, even this week, Lord, with the wrong heart attitude. Lord, I pray for each one of us. Lord, help us take stock of our lives. Every person in this room, Lord, would agree that we want more people to come to Christ. That we want our unsaved family members to be saved. That we want our unsaved co-workers to be saved. That we want our unsaved friends and neighbors to be saved. Lord, help us realize the damage we do when we're in rebellion against you by being in rebellion against the governing authorities. Lord, work in our hearts. Things don't go our way politically all the time, Lord. Sometimes we cheer, sometimes we moan. But help us to react as your children, not just as rabble-rousers. Lord, there are so many areas of our lives where we're required to submit. Help us in relation to the governing authorities in America to be examples. Lord, help us follow Jesus' example. The God-man chose to submit to wicked fallen men because it was your will. Lord, help us to have such a heart of submission that even if we feel like it's unjust or wrong what the government is doing, we can still submit for your sake. And Lord, if the government does cause us to sin, give us the courage to reject in that narrow circumstance a command to disobey you. But Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to see rightly. And we pray, Lord, that we would be examples for your kingdom and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.